Hello, friends. Registration is now open for next year's Exiles in Babylon conference, and I cannot wait for this conference. Here's a few topics that we're going to wrestle with. The future of the church, disability in the church, multi-ethnic perspectives on American Christianity, and a conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. We have Eugene Cho, Elise Fitzpatrick, Matt Chandler, Michelle Sanchez, Justin Gibney, Devin Stalamar, Hardwick, the list goes on and on. Joey Dodson's going to be there. Um, Greg Boyd and Clay Jones, are, they're going to be engaging in this conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. And of course, we have to have Ellie Bonilla and Street Hymns back by popular demand. And Tanika Wyatt and Evan Wickham will be leading our multi-ethnic worship again. We're also adding a pre-conference this year. So we're going to do a, um, an in-depth scholarly conversation on the question of women in ministry featuring two scholars on each side of the issue. So uh, doctors Gary Bashirs and Sydney Park are on the complementarian side and doctors Cynthia Long-Westfall and Philip Payne on the egalitarian side. So March 23rd to 25th, 2023, here in Boise, Idaho. We sold out last year and we'll probably sell out this year again. Uh, so if you want to come, if you want to come live, then I would register sooner than later. And you can always attend virtually if you can't make it out to Boise in person. So all the info is at theologyintherod.com. That's theologyintherod.com. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is one of my favorite uh, thinkers and pastors in the country. His name is Josh Porter. He is the author of the recently released or about to be released uh, book, Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. If you uh, hear Josh speak, which you will in a second, if you saw Josh, if you hung out with Josh, you would say this dude has all the ingredients to be a, a typical kind of person who has deconstructed from, from Christianity. He's the front man in the punk rock band Showbread. He's got more tattoos than I think I've ever seen on a pastor. Um, has very much is sympathetic for reasons why people do, do deconstruct. And yet he is a pastor. He is incredibly committed to Christian orthodoxy. Uh, and he's, he can be contrarian in his thinking, as you will see. So I'm super excited for you to listen to this conversation. We had a wonderful time talking. We could have just kept on going, but I had to cut the conversation off. We get into lots of stuff that might be offensive to some people. So a um, little trigger warning on this episode. If you're an easily offended person, then this might not be the episode to listen to. But for the rest of us, uh, please welcome back to the show, the one and only Josh Porter. Josh, thanks for coming back on the podcast. I don't know when I had you on last, but it was a few years ago at least, right? Two or three years ago, I think. Well, for me, it feels like yesterday. I, I order my life around my appearances <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> as you should, as you should. So you're coming out with a new book. I was just, we we're just chatting offline that you asked me to endorse it. And I, it was at a time when I just, it still would be at a time when I just have no space for any endorsements. But I did read the first little bit of it. And I was like, Dang, this and I don't I wouldn't say this if I didn't mean it. I would just say, hey, dude, I'm really excited about your book coming out. I know how to word things in a way that doesn't give false compliments. Yeah, don't but, we all? Oh yeah. We're Christians. We know how to <laughs> 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 um your book's incredibly well written. And the, the bit I read, I'm like, oh my gosh, I I really want to go back and read this, um, even if it's not for an endorsement. But um, so the book is Death to Deconstruction. The subtitle is 
pretty BA, uh, reclaiming faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Let's just jump into the book. What led you to write this book? I know you build your own personal story in at the beginning, which is really kind of in your face, like raw, <laughs> which is why yeah. I love it. But um, yeah, what led to the your, you writing this book? Well, my story, honestly, if you read the, if anyone ends up actually reading the book, my most of it or a lot of it is my story, but I didn't set out to write anything memoir-ish. Um, I don't gravitate toward that personally or usually, um, and you know, my primary wheelhouse is fiction. So I, I did want to write about deconstruction. Um, it's something that not, as a pastor, obviously, this is something that I'm having conversations about on a near daily level, even with a small church. The reach of the deconstruction fad is, you know, one can scarcely overstate what a conversation piece it is, at least in the kind of uh, American expression of, you know, post-enlightenment, smarty, smarty pants, spirituality kind of world. So I wanted to write about deconstruction. It's something that is interesting to me, fascinating, frustrating, alienating, uh, but something that is also deeply relatable to me in a, in many ways. And I set out to write kind of like a smart professor, like uh, academic book that would be uh, a defense for orthodoxy that I would say, oh, here's the reason why you should actually believe these things that I would come up with, I guess, essentially like apologetic arguments to common quibbles that deconstructors have. And I realized that that book exists, uh, a stacks of that book exist. And some of them are really, really good. In fact, I read one right before I started um, the final draft. Uh, so I had I'd already written my draft by A.J. Swoboda. He has a book called After Doubt that yeah. was, it's probably, at least in my experience, the best version of that book that I was going to set out to write uh, by a professor, extremely knowledgeable, but readable. And when I sat down to actually write that book, I couldn't make it work. I, I realized that the more that I tried to draw on my own experience, conversations that I've had with other people, the more it occurred to me that deconstruction is not, I don't think personally, primarily an intellectual movement as much as it is an emotional uh, reaction. And that trying to write from a purely intellectual or answering intellectual questions and problems with things like the Bible or humanity, God, that kind of thing, uh, is important. It's a worthwhile endeavor. It's been done. It's been done very well. But that when I reached into my own experience and story, I had, I realized that I had this living irony in that I have every reason in the world to have deconstructed my faith. I grew up in the Deep South, fundamentalist, Southern Baptist, during the satanic pa panic of the 80s and 90s, hyper paranoia about culture, and yet like hyper Christian nationalism, racism, yeah. uh, hypocrisy at every level of church and leadership. And uh, I was kind of wired for rebellion and be to be a contrarian and couldn't find a place to put that. And everywhere I turned, I wanted to love Jesus and people were telling me that I was doing it wrong. And I found punk rock and I went out into the world to play music. And somehow I am more uh, rooted in the ancient, historic, orthodox Jesus tradition than 
I have ever been with every reason. You know, I sat down and, and I have conversations on a regular basis with people who are either on the precipice of deconstructing or they are in the throes of deconstructing or they have deconstructed. Mm-hmm. And I can relate to almost everything that every one of them says, at least in some kind of slightly detached or comparable kind of way. If not the exact same experience, I have one like it, one that's in some way comparable. And the question that I kept you know, getting was, well, then what the heck? How, <laughs> how are you still here? How did you end up where you are? And so the book became that, essentially. There's still theology in it, and there's still arguments from the Bible and intellectual stuff, but it's mostly braided together with my story, which allowed me to write from you know a more narrative kind mm-hmm. of way, which I prefer anyway. So well, everything worked out. Yeah, It's probably a lot more effective in the types of person you're trying to speak to in the book. Like you said, there's a lot of other books can they can reach other types of people, but... Um, that the very kind of people that are deconstructing are probably going to resonate more with a more narrative form that is intellectually honest and and sophisticated and yet is narratively presented. Is that even a phrase? Narratively presented. Sure, that works. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What? So, do, would you say you went through a period of deconstruction, or just that you have all the kind of sociological ingredients that could have led you there, if that makes sense? Uh, or, or did you actually deconstruct your faith at one point? Well, I make you know the the pro- one of the problems with the deconstruction conversation is that the language is so open to interpretation. Uh, you right. know, a lot of folks argued back to me, especially when they read the title, that not all deconstruction is bad or, you know, deconstruction refers to a great many things. So I make a distinction early on in the book that, um, what a lot of people describe as quote unquote, good deconstruction, I would describe as spiritual formation or transformation of faith. They're not talking about eradicating the, you know, the institutions of Christianity. They're talking about like, I used to believe one thing, but the more I followed Jesus, I learned that it's not exactly right. So I had to develop my faith, mature my faith. That's, that's the process that every disciple of Jesus goes through as they continue to follow Jesus years and years into their life and maturity. I don't call that deconstruction, even if it involves dismantling some of the things that we've been given early on in our discipleship. Um, this deconstruction for me, and I think honestly at like a con- a colloquial level, a conversational level is more about, you know, kind of bred out of, um, critical theory, the idea that these institutions and leaders are inherently corrupt and that we should tear them apart. We should take them all down. And that if we do build anything else, it, it won't be from the pieces of this thing we've been given. We'll build our own thing or we'll cobble together a spirituality out of different ideas that we like or that gratify us or or whatever it might be. And I think that uh, honestly, you know, yes, the term is complicated and nuanced, but when we have conversations in, you know, faith circles or in church circles or with people who are post-evangelical, in my experience anyway, that's what they mean by deconstruction. So I went through the kind of halls of deconstruction, if you like, for years of my life without ever committing to a deconstruction moment, per se. Uh, I had lots of the same exact problems that most people have, and I I kind of couch many of them together in the book into these things that I call the great predators, Um, things like biblical illiteracy and the problem of evil and hypocrisy 
you know, politicized faith, these things that come along and destroy faith because of lack of resources, tools, understanding, or people just bail or whatever the reason might be. So all of these, the great predators, I call them, um, came to me at different points in my discipleship to Jesus. And some of them came close to undoing my faith mm-hmm. in Jesus, but I never reached the the deconversion moment. Okay. I never reached the point where I effectively denounced Mm-hmm. Jesus. Uh, in fact, I was. It was more like a uh, kind of hanging on with the edge of your fingertips kind of thing. And I don't. I don't know. I think I'm about to fall. I don't know if this is going to work. But I'm too scared to let go. Too too afraid to fully commit or or whatever. I can't for some reason. But I was there. I was in. I I did all the deconstructing things for a long period uh, mm-hmm. of my life before. Um, leaving that period behind. So you have your own story that you've explained and you, you now are talking to a lot of other people who are in, in that world on some level in, in, in deconstructing world that you painted. You said in your own story that was kind of you were raised in fundamentalism. I have yet to meet, this is totally anecdotal, could be off. I've yet to meet somebody who has deconstructed, is deconstructing, who wasn't also raised in Christian fundamentalism. Um, or hyper-legalistic, overtly, oppressively conservative environments. Have you met anybody that was raised in a very healthy, maybe they were like women preachers and teachers, or like, you know, there's uh, they believed in, you know, they, they allowed for, you know, an old earth interpretation of Genesis, or whatever, like humble leadership. Have you met anybody that was raised in what you would consider a very, very healthy form of evangelicalism that deconstructed too? I haven't. the The only exception to that rule that I'm aware of is a small minority of former Christians who came to faith later in life and were immediately propelled into some kind of imperfect, as they all are, evangelical movements. And you know, it's uh, a little bit like what Jesus described as seeds falling on shallow soil. So there, and okay. and. In that case, deconstruction is rapid. It it there's a conversion moment, and maybe a year passes, two years pass, and they're like, "Wait, I had no idea we had to think these things, or I had no idea the Bible really said this." So they were drawn into the you know the magnetism of the teaching of Jesus, or uh, a moment, some kind of like what they would describe as a spiritual moment at a church gathering or some such thing. So it's it's a bit like a later in life youth camp experience. Okay. Yeah. Uh, especially in um, urban centers where you have church movements that are, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but like a hip church movement where something interesting is happening and lots of people are coming into in a place like San Francisco or Portland or whatever, Brooklyn. And they're like, oh my God, I had no idea that this was like this. And there's there's something here. There's electricity here and there's love and community and you know, human beings crave connection and community sure. and and they reach for some kind of spiritual ingredient. And so they come around, but then as soon as the the difficulties or you know the the real take up your cross thing of Jesus comes out, the, they're like, oh my God, I had no idea that this is intense. <laughs> but that's that's a minority of people yeah. in my experience. The vast majority, and I, I mean I don't mean to overstate it, but at you know traveling as a musician who talks about Jesus and pastoring a church and working with other churches, I've talked to a lot of people who belong to this camp or are kind of swept up in this movement. And almost always the the key ingredient is, you know, some kind of um, what they would describe as a corrupt Christian upbringing uh, and, and or 
um, you know, uh, oppressive Christian parenting kind of story. Okay. Like, yeah. I don't want anything to do with this. And then, well, tell me about your parents. And then, you know, that, yeah. that comes out. It's, it's, it's a little bit, I mean, it's, I'll just, yeah, no, it is sad. It's sad because for, for several reasons, um, I think there's healthy forms of conservative evangelicalism and then very unhealthy forms. Cause a healthy form would say, you know, Hey, look, we believe in a young earth, we believe male only teachers, whatever we believe, um, in, in a rapture view of end times, whatever the token kind of conservative beliefs are. And they, um, yeah. they, Hey, we believe these, we've studied it we from biblical conviction, but we acknowledge that there's, there are good godly people who are on other sides and there are other uh, ways to read this text. Uh, but we believe, maybe we strongly believe in, in, young earth way of reading Genesis, but I'm not, we're not going to deny that uh, another way of reading it is like denying the authority of scripture or something like there's other valid options that we disagree with on a lot of these secondary, what I would consider secondary issues. Um, that would be a healthy yep. conservatism. When you speak about liberals, which is kind of everybody to the left of you, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You humanize them. You don't uh, straw man them. You respect them as human beings. And then you give, 18 reasons why you disagree with the report or whatever, you know, but it's, it's the, the, the approach is just different. It's more humble. It's humanizing. Um, that's healthy conservative. The unhealthy kind is, you know, when you demonize everybody that disagrees with you, everybody's on a slippery slope. You're the only one that has it the right way. Everybody else is probably worshiping Satan or something. Not quite, but actually I've yeah. heard things along yeah. those lines. The implication is actually, there. It's funny. So I, I, do you know Tony Scarcello? He's out in um, Springfield. Oregon. I don't know Tony. Okay. Tell me you, about Tony. You would love Tony. Um, he had a major de deconstruction, really like pretty brutal, and then ended up really coming back to a place where I would, as, as much as I know you, I think you, me, and him would all be similar spot. John Mark Homer and others, you know. Uh, he wrote a great book called Regenerate, kind of sharing his story. Beautifully written book, um, telling why he came back to to orthodoxy. And one of the things that brought him back was um, he was raised fundamentalist. And when he kind of deconstructed towards, he says, I wasn't really deconstructing my faith completely. It was more towards a very progressive view of Christianity. When I lived in that world, though, I just saw fundamentalism rebranded. Uh, same thing, different content, you know, like you, a lot of straw manning, a lot of like intolerance, a lot of like all the same ingredients that drove me out of fundamentalism I saw in progressive Christianity. I wasn't happier. Uh, I didn't love people more. I was more kind of bitter and angry and all the stuff that, I just went back to square one with a different set of content, which now he came back to more of a, a healthy, humble orthodoxy. Um, have you seen that in the, in the conversations you're having that if people dip their toe in a progressive form of Christianity, it looks really attractive, maybe at face value, especially when you come out of fundamentals and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is where I belong. But then in some, I'm not going to broad brush, but in some progressive Christian environments, the tone feels almost fundamentalist. Yeah, in fact, that becomes a huge element of the book. And that was part of my experience as well, is that, you know, it, it's a bit, it mirrors a little bit like my kind of foray into the punk rock movement. Because for, for me, there was this moment where I'm like, oh my God, what is this thing? And it was electric and it was an interesting and it felt as if it was like a place for outsiders, people wired for rebellion. And then you you move into these punk rock circles, and it's very quickly begins to feel like its own 
um, isolated subculture with walls around it mm. uh, that are like, well, it comes with a fashion sense and it comes with certain rules that you you know, evoke over music. And you can't do that because that's not punk. And um, it becomes very self-defeating. Uh, and that was frustrating to me. And part of my whole, you know, creative journey was, well, then I'm not, I'm not really interested in trading one uniform for another. I thought that this was something that we were doing to, you know, like, uh, um, be able to escape the confines yeah. of, of fundamentalism. Let's, let's yes, exactly. <laughs> the quasi spiritual progressive you know, half Christian or, or, you know, however one might want to describe, I'm obviously using terms that are, um, snarky, but, uh, it feels to me a lot like having, having moved into that place and, and read into that place and, and thinking that there would be a home for me there, especially at the beginning of my, you know, theological journey. So my deconstruction kind of thing at first was purely escaping the, the, the things, the modes that I'd been given raised in the church and figuring out what I really thought, reacting to hypocrisy and the ways that I'd been hurt and then wanting to learn and grow. And I decided, you know, like, well, if I am going to follow Jesus, I would like to do it in a sincere way. And was drawn to theologians and reading and eventually seminary. And there, there was at, at first this draw to like, well, I, I don't want this. I don't want these things that give off, you know, uh, my Southern Baptist vibes, but the, up, the upbringing to which I was accustomed, I want some, I want ideas that are interesting. I want things that are outside the box. And, um, you, you realize very quickly, it becomes this, like the repeat of the experience I had with punk rock, which is, an extreme aversion to in, on on the progressive end to anything that seems to remotely hint at conservatism, and that to me is not helpful either. It, it seems to me, and you know, I'm not a psychologist or a sociologist, but it seems to me that again and again, my own journey with trying to help people follow Jesus in any way I can is about trying to draw people to this extremely frustrating and often ambiguous middle that becomes deeply uncomfortable for people to occupy long-term unless they go through that very difficult process of spiritual formation. Uh, because sides are easier. It's very mm -hmm. comforting to have a camp. It's very uh, comforting to have a side and a system, you know, like, a, and I was really drawn to theological systems. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with these things per se, but they become the rubric by which we gauge orthodoxy rather than, you know, a helpful tool to work out the very complicated um, details of our mm. theological beliefs. Uh, and it's fascinating. And off, uh, honestly, there's a bit of like black humor in the book. It's it's hilarious, honestly, to me to sit down with folks that have almost unknowingly traded one fundamentalism for another. And Preston, there's actually a quote from you that I use all the time in my teachings. Uh, it's probably in the book about, and it's great. People always, ooh, 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 you know, when you read this thing off a slide. But I can't wait to quote. hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> you have this great quote about how um, conservative fundamentalism is, you know, the inability to listen to the other side, the demonizing of your opponents, the closed mindedness that says, I'm only right, I won't listen to. And then there's this little, you know, punchline at the end that says progressive fund or fundamentalism is the exact same thing. There is this kind of blissful 
ignorance or willful ignorance that often comes in the early transition phase of, you know, post deconstruction, deconversion. And now I think these things and man, isn't it crazy? Like I'm putting this stuff on the internet and I believe stuff that would make my mom so mad. (laughs) And it comes with a new rule book. The new rule book says you, you have to say these things, you know, like the, I was telling my wife the other day that because she made a joke saying that, you know, you you sound like your parents when you <laughs> quibble about uh, the um, the rules of progressivism, you know. And I think that you know, I was like, man, you're, you're right. I do sound like that. I wonder what happened to me. And I thought about it a lot and prayed about it. And I think that it's not uniquely me, but I, I am deeply allergic to um, fundamentalism and to like kind of fundamentalist bullying. And I think a lot of that probably comes from, you know, you know, all the way I was raised and trauma and that kind of thing. But there is the new kind of progressive spiritualism to me looks identical in every way to the conservative fundamentalism bullying that went on during the 80s and 90s, which is like, you can't use these words. You have to use our words. We don't care what you believe you have to subscribe to our beliefs. And if you don't say it right, we're going to punish you. And we want our people and political power to impose our moral ideology on you. And if you don't get in line with that, then you're a heathen, you're a pagan, you're, you know, you're unclean. We want you out even to the degree of like, it's taken, it's worked its way into the exact same social circles where it's like, we want control of what's being taught in schools or we want control of what's being said on the news and, you know, like what can be on television, what an artist can say, what lyrics are permissible, um, which artists need to be banished and boycotted, which shows and movies are inappropriate for consumption by the public. This was all stuff that happened in the 80s and 90s with conservative Christians and now is happening to the exact same extent and degree and in the exact same realms with with the progressives. So to me, it doesn't really matter whether it's, you know, I don't feel deeply antagonistic toward conservative, the conservative ideologies or the progressive ideologies in and of themselves. It's the fundamentalism and the imposition, the ideological imposition and bullying. And especially when that encroaches on like the arts, you know, and that whole thing uh, bothers me particularly. That's a big deal in, uh, yeah, the arts in society right now with like comedians, right? I mean, isn't there like almost like a, well, there's been a lot of just censuring or attempts to censure and then like a backlash now with artists saying, no, we're not going to, we're going to do our art well. And if change a channel, if you can't, if you're offended by it or whatever. And, you know, I, I've been listening to a lot of stand up comedians recently and that's, that's kind of a big theme, which stand up comedians are, I didn't know this until a couple of years ago. They're, they're brilliant. <laughs> Yes, they're great they are. social prophets. Like they deeply see, prophetic. Yeah. Yes, yes, and they come off kind of jovial or whatever. I mean, some some come off a little more sophisticated, but they have the ability to kind of like touch on things and see things that, yeah, and be be contrary. Good comedy is almost essentially contrarian, mm-hmm. drawing out the stuff, the quiet part that people don't want to say out loud and are scared to say out loud, but they just kind of do it. And that's part of the art that they perform I, I don't know anything about i'm speaking out of my turn here but um i, I would imagine no, in, in, in your especially in the genre music that you're in the same spirit is probably very prevalent right i mean yeah and my uh 
primary influence and inspiration as a preacher has always been stand-up comedians uh, over and against. I mean, there's a lot of wonderfully gifted pastors and speakers that I listen to on a regular basis and draw inspiration from, but from before I even started to routinely teach Bible and theology at churches, um, my main inspiration, the driving force to be like, oh, I would like to learn how to speak in front of people was Dave Chappelle for oh, yeah. years and years and years of uh, my life. And and watching his trajectory from kind of like uh, over-the-top absurdist and race satire to becoming this uh, deeply sophisticated um, intellectual commentary on race, politics, and social structures um, with, you know, a deeply offensive black comedy and outrageous, like, uh, the outrageous ability to provoke yeah. the audience into thinking. And this was all before, you know, he's was going through his, uh, are you, or are you not canceled moment? Right. Um, so following that, just as an example of someone who, uh, it was a kind of a darling of progressivism and because they like him a lot when he talks about race uh, but they do not like it if he ta- if he comments on gender, and there are these no go zones, um, and it doesn't matter. You know, nuance doesn't matter, or the ability to disagree doesn't matter. The or even just you know into, uh, intelligent. Uh, this is wrong, and here's why I think it's wrong. It it has to be silenced, and it, now it reminds me of when I was a kid. Uh, the great Don Bluth movie, The Land Before Time, oh, yeah. was uh, had just been released into theaters. Uh, my brother and I were so excited to go see this <laughs> animated movie about dinosaurs. And my parents had hyped it up. Oh, this weekend we're going to go see The Land Before Time. But our local theater was also playing Martin Scorsese's uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. So our church called for a boycott of the theater. No one can go to this theater until they take that movie out. We want to send a very clear message. You can't play that movie or we won't give you our business. Not even don't go see the movie. Don't even let this theater exist. It has to be shut down unless they take that movie out. No, my parents felt so bad. They were like, we're just going to quietly go see the land before time. And (laughs) (laughs) hopefully no one finds out at church. Don't just disagree and don't even just reject the thing itself. The, the, everything around it has to be taken down. It, unless it adheres to the comrade-approved script, it has to be destroyed. And that has been the kind of fundamentalist mantra, all, at least in my you know few decades on the planet. I mean, and you're, you're in, so Vancouver, Washington, just north of Portland, which they kind of just run together, divided by a river. Have you had a front row seat to that kind? I mean, you know, the the assumption is Portland is just, you know, infested by Antifa and just off the rails, far left and everything. But is that, is there a lot of truth to that? And I know you, you when you watch like, <laughs> it was so comical, like watching like during the pandemic, like you watch like Fox news and you see Portland just like burning to the ground. Right? <laughs> just, yeah. I'm like, Oh my gosh, stay within a hundred miles of the city. Or you're going to just be. And then you see like the, you know, on the other side of the aisle, it's like, you know, um, peaceful protests or sit in. It was just like, yeah, it was just sure. two different pictures, you know, just because people are, they don't care about telling the truth. They just want to bend the narrative in a certain direction to get clicks from the audience that they can make most angry. But yeah. Do, do you have, I mean, would you say, say as a pat, you're pastoring in that area? It, is it very much that like, do you deal with like very hyper progressive kind of viewpoints inside the church, outside the church all around? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's the, 
that's the main obstacle in pastoring people, leading a church, trying to not just at a pastoral level, but you know, like peer to peer, trying to help one another follow Jesus in the context of you know community, friendships, small groups, that kind of thing. If I had stayed in Georgia, I think that my voice or the thing that would most aggravate me would still be the right, would be Christian nationalism and, you know, racism, these things that, you know, still present a, a major prop, major obstacles to faith in Jesus, but that are not part of the, the common landscape of pastoring and being a Christian where I live now, at least not on such a, you know, ugly surface level. You know, racism is uh, everywhere, but it takes on more sinister, secretive tones in a place like Portland, whereas in, in Georgia, the stand on the side of the road is selling like right, racist propaganda with horrible things on T-shirts. It's not a secret. It's not. Yeah. And, and it's kind of excused. It's like, oh, well, people don't know any better. This was the way that they were raised, that, that kind of thing. And it keeps it alive and in motion, whereas a place like Portland, the thing that keeps racism alive is everyone telling themselves that they're, they're not really racist, so they never really deal with the kind of stuff that's in the heart, and that keeps it alive. But in a place like the Portland metro area where our church is, uh, these folks, if I stood up there and told them what I would say in Georgia, everyone would just hooray me out the door. They'd be like, hooray, Josh, hoorah. You know, it's like he hates racism and nationalism, and so do we. And everyone would pat each other on the backs, and we'd all feel really great that we're not like anyone else. But that's not what I pick on at our church. You know, what's the point of telling everyone what we already know? And there's a time and a place to, you know, go into things that are yeah. hidden in, in each of us, obviously. But when I pick on the progressive stereotypes at our church, which I do on a, on a regular level, some something of a provocateur, I'm told. So I'm trying to find these things and and aggravate people in a way that much like, you know, a prophetic stand-up comedian find the the squirm button and 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 make us laugh about it but also ask questions about it and get frustrated and and wonder what it is that what are we doing is this really what I think and um and it comes at, you know, with a tremendous amount of pushback. Uh, Can you give me an example? And, I'm, know, curi- that, I'm curious what that looks like. like uh, well, the best example is during the uh, last election season, I did a, a, a short series at our church called Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Not, and uh, and presented what, you know, for a lack of a more detailed way of saying, is kind of like an Anabaptist position on engagement in the political realm. And I did it in such a way where I'm hopefully trying to walk people gently into a a different perspective by um, talking to them about the way that the early church understood the uh, power and the oppressor and how the early church engaged the political system and how they didn't, um, the concept of nonviolence. And then I just drag you under the bus. I put your quotes (laughs) up on the screen. I'm like, don't be mad at me. This guy wrote the book. (laughs) And he's not nearly Um, as tatted as I am. (laughs) Yeah, he actually exactly. looks Look fairly conservative. I know. I put a picture of you up there with your nice smile, and they're like, "What? That guy?" You can uh, Photoshop a suit and tie in, like a big white Bible. And- <laughs> <laughs> I already did, man. That's what I use, and that was fascinating because our church is small, and it was every week there was blow there was blowback from 
closeted right-leaning uh, <laughs> congregants <laughs> and uncloseted uh, left-leaning. You know, I think by default we assume that if not consciously from the culture, osmosis from the culture, our, our church, the demographic is very young. It's people like from 20 to late 30s mostly with a few outside of that realm. And we just assume, you know, if you've lived in this area or if you've even been here for a little while, the message that you're getting from culture is a deeply progressive ideology. So there was that. There was like the, the you know, if you present even a very balanced and non-dogmatic, um, just like food for thought, provocative, you know, uh, stuff from your book, from Fight, stuff from, you know, a book like Boyd's Myth of a Christian Nation or, you know, material from Scott McKnight reading stuff and trying to guide people into just like, man, isn't this incredible that this was the position of the church at this time and that these are quotes that we have and this is uh, a real thing. The reaction is so deeply, it, well, it is deeply reactive. There are people who are like, it sounds like you're saying that we don't need to fight the conservatives. And then the <laughs> other side was saying like, it almost sounded like you were saying we shouldn't be fighting this progressive agenda, you know? Um, and of course, the thing that I'm sure any uh, pastor or preacher knows is you get a lot of like, you said this. And I'm like, well, I actually never said any of those words, but yeah. <laughs> we can look back at the manuscript together if you want. Yeah. Um, but it does reveal that kind of like, well, they heard, they heard that on some level, the inference, you know, one of the things that I heard that was still fascinating to me is, uh, we, during when the world was reacting to the murder of George Floyd at our church, like many churches spent, you know, a while talking about, um, racism and you know systemic racism, injustice, the the Bible's perspective on race and um, reconciliation, and uh, you know there were people who were offended but uh, committed. They were like, mm. ah, this this activates something in me, and I don't know why, and I want to deal with it. And that was really refreshing and beautiful. And a lot of people, I think, grew a lot during those conversations. But then there were also folks who, you know, one person told me, you said that unless I was at the Portland protest every single night, that I'm not really a Christian. <laughs> um, and that was fascinating because I didn't mention the protests at all. Oh, my word. Uh, and I, I never said anything about, you know, whether or not someone was or wasn't a Christian based on their participation <laughs> in any social event. Um, but there was this really, uh, even though it was not true, but there was this sincere, um, I mean, she was saying this to the person that she claimed said it. So she you know, I know what I said, you know? <laughs> um, so it wasn't like she was trying to trick me into thinking I said something I did not say. There was this, she felt like that's what the message that had come across when other people were mad that I wasn't encouraging more. You know, like, why didn't you say anything about how to, where to join up at the P Portland protests? Wherever you go, I have found that even in a place like the Portland metro area, yes, the majority of people are entrenched in the progressivism. That's what they take for the worldview that they take for granted. But there are these flowers of, you know, right-leaning ideology that are either ingrained from upbringing or that they've taken from where they've come from. You know, they're like me and they moved from a different place in the world and and some of them carry them around without knowing and other people, you know, they're more on the surface, but there's a mix. The, and again, the middle thing is what aggravates people so deeply. The idea that huh. Jesus is neither this nor this. Yeah. And that if to follow him, it alienates you from this and this. 
And that is a terrifying idea to a lot of people. They're like, well, can't I stay here and also yeah. follow Jesus? And, you know, that yeah. I think that they, we all find more and more, the more that we follow Jesus is that he's calling us out of the sides, calling us away from the allegiances and commitments that, you know, com- compromise our faithfulness. Would you call yourself a Christian anarchist? Do you use that phrase? I forget. And, and yeah, I used to use it all the time because it sounds so cool. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, okay. So two questions then. Do you, so do you still use the phrase? And if not, has the content of your views changed? Have you just ditched the label? I don't consciously not use it. It's just that I find in my context now, it's not really helpful. When I was, uh, in a punk band, we, we use that terminology all the time. We put it in lyrics and on t-shirts and everything and not the, ca- that sounds so capitalist, <laughs> not to <laughs> exploit the movement. 1995. Yeah. I find it very aesthetically interesting that just those two terms put together. The first time I heard it, I was yeah. just like, Whoa, what a weird, um, seemingly dichotomous thing. And, and that put me on reading and I read, you know, Jacques Ellul and Dorothy Day and, mm-hmm. um, and then the, you know, the, um, reader level Christian anarchists is, is Greg Boyd. Um, that if if you find the right interviews, he's saying he's using that terminology. But to me, it's not all that different, especially since there's no de- Christian anarchist denomination. Most of them lean on other thinkers, and some of them who weren't even formally uh, self-espousing Christian anarchists, people like Yoder who didn't use terms like that, who was thoroughly Anabaptist, but the anarchists all use his thinking and writing. And, you know, the politics of Jesus is one of their like handbooks. Yeah. So if it depends, you know, if I'm certain people trying to use terms like Anabaptist is, it can be helpful for them to know what I'm talking about. If, if it's helpfully provocative, then I like the terminology, but it doesn't really matter to me. It looks, it sounds cool. So I, still like cool. I don't pretty, have any problem with being called that. Sounds punk rock. Well, how would you describe your political identity? Um, so unpack your terminology aside. What, how would you describe your political identity or how, however you want to phrase it? Um, I, I think, you know, and I'm, I'm really just going to summarize other smarter people than me, but I, I believe personally that the paradigm that we're given in scriptures is that the institutions of political power, or you might call them kingdoms of the world like Boyd does, or that they are kind of built up in a way that um, has to function with, you know, top-down power over other people, coerce behavior with the threat of punishment, and that there's a time and a place for that kind of system Mm -hmm. and structure, and that, you know, uh, that God orders it, if you like that language, but that the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate and that is growing now and will be realized in full eventually cannot function with top-down power over other people, you know, coercing behavior with the threat of punishment because Jesus, you know, paradigm for radical change, enacting radical change was, you know, bottom-up power, if you like that, or um, self-sacrificial radical love um, that does not coerce. It does not Mm -hmm. impose um, power with the threat of punishment. And so my position is that the state, the governments of the world, they can't do what the kingdom of God does because they're fundamentally established to do something altogether different. And the kingdom of God cannot do what the state does because um, ideas like radical self-sacrificial love, radical generosity, enemy love, nonviolence, 
um, will not be recognized and upheld by nation states. Um, and so I think that the implication is that there is a decidedly narrow place where Christians can and can't um, overlap these two realities. That our temptation is, I think, that to buy into the idea that we're getting from the 24-hour news cycle from both sides, which is that the only real effective way to enact change in the world is through political power, and everything hangs on whether or not our people are in power, whoever your person is. And if not, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And I think that that is a dangerous position for a disciple of Jesus to take. I think that if people have opinions about the way that the kingdoms of the world work, that that's completely valid. If they have preferences, if they think, oh, this person's probably better to run the state than this other person, or these policies probably make more sense for the state than these other policies, the danger is in uh, beginning to describe them as Christian uh, votes, Christian policies, Christian. They may have things that are in common with uh, the teachings of Jesus, but I don't think a political system can hold up under the weight of this is going to be the Christian vision for poli policies and politics and politicians. Mm. Um, it's kind of a, it, to me, a, a doomed enterprise, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think it's, uh, I got a buddy who would say he's a Christian anarchist who he, he believes it's, it's a sin to vote. I've got views on voting, um, but I wouldn't say, I don't think I would say it's a sin to vote, but I, he makes a good case about just casting, like it is a, sim a symbol of allegiance to a certain tribe that has built its foundation upon hating the other tribe and using whatever means possible to destroy that other tribe. Like there's so many, well, kind of what, you, what, you're, what you're saying, it's it's the the vote is attached to a whole different system of views of power that are being fundamentally abused. So he's like, that's a Christian should never uh, do that. Um, again, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but it, would you, do you have thoughts on voting just as a whole? Yeah. So I, I don't disagree with everything that you've described about your friend's viewpoint. And I think that honestly, anyone would be hard pressed to disagree on the whole with everything that you've just said, not necessarily like, okay, take out the whole voting is sin thing. Yeah, Cause that's, yeah. you know, like uh, the, the firecracker yeah, part yeah. of it, <laughs> but then take all the reasons that you just gave for why he believes that voting is inherently sinful. I think that if we're being honest, uh, you, you have to, if you're going to vote, you do have to make your peace with two different things. One is everything that you just said, or that, that your friend believes. Mm, yeah. Um, it is, it is true that, uh, you you are participating in the political machine and that the political machine is, I think even the most, you know, active political parties would agree corrupt. Um, and that it, it functions with a kind of power that is antithetical to the kingdom of God. Um, and then the second thing that you have to make your peace with is complicity, uh, across the board. Uh, I think that, the reason people vote is for complicity. The arguments that we make to encourage voting is that like you have a responsibility to participate and that, you know, your vote matters. And if these things are true, then when there is the results of any given election, um, you have complicity in those results. Now, I don't know to what degree one would carry that, um, or, you know, what level of guilt we would assign someone for that complicity. 
But even if you're not going to say, oh, voting is inherently sinful, I think that if we're being intellectually honest and spiritually honest, you do have to find a way to make pe- – and there are, and there are. There are people who yeah. say, I understand that. I do think it's screwed up, but I also think this and this. So what I'm trying to give people – uh, and I, t- I have a whole thing in the book on, you know, the uh, politicized faith and what I believe is a is a more sustainable position to maintain faith in Jesus and not bail out. But what I'm trying to encourage people is into the consideration that the kingdom of God is not coming from political power, and then to begin to engage those inferences. You know, like uh, I, I did not say in that series, for example, that I did at my church. So at the at the end of this, the conclusion of this, and it ended right before the election, you know, no one should vote. You'll be on church discipline if you do vote. <laughs> but I do think that probably people came away from it saying like, mm, it sounds like <laughs> voting is at least problematic. Yeah. Problematic doesn't always mean, you know, like forbidden, but it's at least a conversation. You know what I mean? Well, I think we have to be, we have to make sure our vote isn't like we have to detach our vote from some sort of allegiance to one of Babylonian's power moves to rule Babylon. Like we have to really work hard to detach that. We have to almost vote with some, some level of theological indifference, theologically, theologically rooted indifference. Um, so even if you think that this side will run Babylon better than this side, you have to separate that and, and be caught. I think exercise healthy cruciform caution um, mm-hmm. with what even that symbol symbolism will do to your heart. So even if your your candidate, I would say that phrase, ugh, um, <laughs> if the candidate you cast your vote for wins, you shouldn't use the phrase "we won." If he loses, you shouldn't say we lost. Your identity is not wrapped up in that tribe. Even if you like, I like what you said. Even if there are certain alleged values, I'm going to come back to that. Alleged values that you think this side has more of than the other side. Like you, you resonate for Christian reasons with the, some of the values promoted by this tribe over that tribe. I, I, I can get that. But your allegiance is never to that political entity. I mean, I yeah, almost want to say it, obviously, but it's not obvious to a lot of people. But. No, and the, you know, it requires such a profound level of maturity to pull that off. Almost, it's it's really similar to a lot of other what we would call vices. You know, like if something like alcohol or mm-hmm. money. Yeah. Um, in that, it it may not be inherently evil, but it's dangerous. And it requires such a, an intense level of spiritual formation and maturity to wield these things responsibly. Um, money, for example, like, uh, you know, the the overwhelming portrait that you get from the scriptures is that, you know, like is uh, super money dangerous. is this, yeah, this insurmountable obstacle to the kingdom of God, almost impossible for a rich person to go to heaven, that, that wealth is an affliction, that wealth the rich are going to be destroyed. Um, and yet, you know, throughout the Christian movement, you've had, even in the New Testament period, like people, people following Jesus who were wealthy. And, right. and so it becomes this like, oh my God, the warnings are just so intense. But, and yet there are, and I've known at least one or two wealthy disciples of Jesus who seem completely unencumbered by their own wealth and who distribute it freely and who seem uncorrupted uh, and and lavishly generous 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but it must require such a tremendous amount of maturity, a, a deep change of the heart to be able to like release the death grip on your own, what's you're entitled to your finances. Um, and I think the same thing must be true of voting, especially, especially in our, you know, hyper divisive partisan, you know, uh, hateful world of sociopolitical vitriol and rhetoric, the idea that someone could come to the voting process with indifference, with holy indifference. It's like, I've got an opinion. I think that this opinion probably makes the most sense. And so I will, I will cast my vote along those lines, but nothing in me is attached to that. That's not my identity. That's not, you know, uh, that, that must be a difficult thing to do. Well, I would also question like, so even if somebody, we're going to guess, I'm going to send all my emails your way. (laughs) This is really, I didn't know we were going here. I didn't either. No, this is great. I might renounce everything I am saying tomorrow, but I would question whether people, the average citizen has the ability to even say this, for instance, we're just sticking on presidential election, whether this candidate truly is the better candidate, because our knowledge of what that person says, who they are, has been so filtered through, a, I would just call it a corrupt medium of how we even receive news that comes to our table. Like we, we, it's been so narratively driven. I mean, mm-hmm. the, do you trust the news outlets on the left to give us an accurate portrait of who Trump is? They're, they're going to go out of their way to build the worst narrative possible. Why? For power. <laughs> they want him out of power and they want to be in power. They want to control yep. your life. They, you know, um, do they, do, does the left care about, do they really care about racism or are they using, the racial conversation to achieve power. I'll let the audience decide, you know, what, what they think about that. Or on the right, do they really care about whatever hobby horse they're on or are they trying to maintain? So it's, and, and maybe like 30, 40 years ago, maybe there was a more honest form of journalism where you can actually get a decent, honest picture, complex picture, because humans are complex, a complex picture of each candidate. And then you have a more, you have, you have a more honest ability to say, okay, this guy does seem to be 60, 40, maybe, maybe going to do better for Babylon than this candidate. But now I just question whether we even have access to that, you know? Um, yeah. You know, and know. it's, it's not, it seems like a controversial position to take, but it's really not the, the news media is a for-profit business. And there has been to some degree, like an admission from these institutions of journalism that, we have embraced a kind of hysteria uh, yeah. for the sake of marketability. You sure. know, we we want to click on the thing that will make us mad, um, that will fire us up, and we like outrage porn, and we like um, the idea of demonizing the other person. It's, there's a certain corrupt satisfaction that comes with, you know, to back to your thing about Portland, the hilarious reality is that both things were entirely true the whole time. And I say this as someone who was in and out of the city that that entire period that it was being presented on one side as, you know, uh, the Rome burning and on the other side as uh, a kind of hippie commune where everyone was hugging and singing Kumbaya to combat racism. Uh, Both things were true concurrently. 
if you drove around and we did, we were all just living in the city and driving around, you'd look down a side street and see looters and fire and windows breaking. And then you'd turn a corner and there would be a group of people having a calm conversation. And I mean, huh. within uh. a square mile of one another and one thing continued to rage on, but it would be isolated to a certain spot and kind of, you know, like more or less, I mean, it was chaos, but it was under control to the degree that the whole city wasn't this terrifying world. And then, you know, there was, I'm still going to the store down the road from <laughs> the place where, you know, cops are yelling through megaphones and, but that's not, a, that's not interesting on a, on channel six. You know, what's interesting is either that it's burning to the ground or that we're being lied to. It's not burning to the ground. That's just what they want you to think. Either thing gets us all riled up against our enemies and that's what we want. And it right, feels right, good right, to right. be so angry all the time, but not really. Uh, so it's not really a controversial position. I think that even people who uh, watch a lot, and I don't watch uh, full disclosure. And again, send all your complaint emails to Preston. I'm, I'm sure he gets plenty. Uh, he can take it. He wrote fight. Uh, and he, now he just writes books about gender and sexuality. Surely he can take all the complaint emails that you have to send. Uh, you know, I, this is a side story because I have ADD, but we, I took it. One of my last, uh, classes in graduate school was used all your material on gender and sexuality and, every, you know, there were people flipping out in this class one way or the other. And I was like, oh, man, I wish I could just send him videos of this. <laughs> this must be happening all over the place all the time. So he can handle your emails. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the the it's not a secret that even the people that love the news, watch the news religiously, get riled up by the news. I would be shocked if they said with often with true sincerity and integrity, like, no, I believe, I deeply believe everything that's coming to me. They, I think that we're in on the con to a certain degree. I don't watch mm. any news at all. I find it, you know, like terrible for my soul and my mind. I'm not interested. Again, you can even send your complaint emails about me to Preston. It's fascinating to me, even from like a church perspective, and this is something we've talked about in our church a lot, like the news hysteria and the way that it affects people's minds and their hearts. And I have a couple of friends who also don't watch any news and there is a marked um, amicability that comes in these conversations. <laughs> they step into conversations. They're like, oh, really? Tell me more. That They're not fired up. They're not hostile because they have no stake in this propaganda, you know, whereas other people are like, what the heck, you don't know this. And they're already angry. And this person's just like, no, tell me more, you know? Uh, <laughs> so I, I think we know that we know that we can't get the clearest, truest picture. Um, but we're, we're, to, you know, working with what we have and the news is what we have. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, as you know, Preston, a Calvinist, but I have a, a deeply dim view of humanity, of, of him, human nature. And not, not that I don't love people and that I believe in the image of God and people I do on a deep, profound soul level. But I think that it really shouldn't surprise us that people suck, you know, that, <laughs> that people lie and that they're crooked and twisted and broken. This is a huge point of my, you know, I'm stepping all over my spoilers for my book, but this is something that I discuss at length in the book, which is, you know, I have this whole chapter called, uh, my father was a racist and I loved him, uh, that argues that 
we should expect people to be terrible to some degree. And then we shouldn't be surprised when people can also be good, that they can inhabit both things at the same time. But again, that's so frustrating because it pulls us into this ambiguous middle that like people can be horrible, capable of the most horrible things imaginable and be capable of really good things. How do they do that? What does that mean? We can love people that are up because we want to categorize people and, you know, like to say even, Say something like my father was a racist and I loved him is a, a hilariously controversial thing to say. You can love a racist. Well, yeah, he was my dad, um, and be honest about who he was. But re- believing in the political machine forces us to kind of bypass a lot of these things and and believe that one guy or gal is completely corrupt and the other person isn't. They're this bastion of hope and beauty, and they're going to do be everything the other person isn't to the degree that you know I passed a mural in Seattle. It was like hilariously death metal looking of Trump and Hillary shoulder to shoulder as kind of like zombified mutants. <laughs> and it said, like, uh, um, choose the destroyer, the line from Ghostbusters when uh, <laughs> uh, Gozer threatens the Ghostbusters by forcing them in the Stay Puff Marshmallow. Spoilers for Ghostbusters, by the way, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> and so furious about this mural. It got painted over and everything. And I thought, what, what a funny thing to to just take a position that people are bad, that both, both politicians are probably bad, but you know, we don't like that. We want to camp. But I, yeah, and I think even that assumption that one is clearly better than the other, I, I do think that that assumption is, is that, that, that's, that competes with, I think a biblical worldview, right? I mean, it's, it's very eschatological. It's very, um, I don't think it just neutrally, that mindset neutrally exists alongside a biblical view to where you can be, you know, hey, we're supposed to be good citizens of Babylon, this, that, we can do both and we can do the political thing and do the Christian thing. Like, I think there are ideological clashes if you hold this kind of right wing or left wing narrative and try to hold that in one hand and a Christian view in, in the other. Uh, biblically, it doesn't work at all. That that seems pretty obvious. But then somebody could say, well, the empires and the kingdoms that the Bible was written in are, you know, way, 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 way worse than, you know, America. Um, yeah. And it it's funny that it forces us to um, kind of turn a, a blind eye to the inherent contradictions to just operate at all. And then it forces you to kind of summarize complex arguments in a way that's unhelpful and then get mad about someone else summarizing complex arguments in a way that is unhelpful. And the, I mean, the easiest example, you ready for this? More angry emails. <laughs> easiest example of the, the, uh, the dichotomy of the political um, vitriol is uh, stereotypically, you know, the right cares about a, I'm going to put this in quotation marks, pro-life position. Um, and what I mean by that is that they're anti-pro-choice legislation. They want they want to you know crack down on the legality of abortions. I wouldn't actually call it pro-life. That's a bad term. But so that's the stereotype. The right hates abortions, and then on the the stereotype is on the left. They don't like war and violence, and they want to you know they want to encourage more peace and that kind of thing. Now, divorced of the all the complex nuance in both of those conversations, even divorced of the political climate and the political, the necessary political inferences 
you know, the idea of life in the womb, for example, you, you could declare this a biblical value and you could build a cause on it as a disciple of Jesus, historically, theologically, scripturally, and certainly, you know, you and I would argue that on the other side, that to oppose violence and war and militarism is again, you know, you can make a clear argument from the scriptures theologically, uh, and uh, as a moral uh, imperative for a disciple of Jesus. And so then it becomes this ridiculous, like, well, which thing do you like more? And <laughs> it forces you to then also behave as if having these conversations on a political level is entirely different than having them on a practical, uh, theological mm. level, person to person. And it forces you to just talk past the other person and to, you know, to essentially straw man them and be like, well, you say this and oh, that's not what I say, but it's easier to knock that down than it is to be like, I acknowledge the complexities. It goes back to what you said, you know, three hours ago <laughs> about that balanced evangelicalism that exists, but is missing from a lot of our backstories, wherein there was someone who took, say, a complementarian position on female preachers, but did so humbly and gently by saying that, like, look, you can go down the street and find a great church that loves Jesus and disagrees with me. I believe this is what the Bible teaches. I'm willing to admit I could be wrong. Um, that does not sell uh, mm. in the political world. Right. That kind of nuance necessary to even make sense. Right. It does not sell. It doesn't sell. And yet I feel like deep down, a a lot of humans are hungry for that, which gets, I think is, if I'm true, if, I'm, if that's correct, then it gets frustrating when the church mirrors this kind of binary, like you're evil, I'm good, whatever, like this tribe's way better than this tribe. When it mirrors that, I think people are hungering for somebody to step up and provide a better way of being human in the world. And the church has the blueprint to do that very thing. So when we when we echo the kind of, values of Rome, if you will, rather than the humble values of the kingdom. Not only is that not biblical, but I think we miss out on an opportunity to shine a light where people are hungering for it, you know, but. Yeah. And we create this ridiculous, I shouldn't say ridiculous. I, I understand that this is extremely um, complicated, mm -hmm. but it forces us to crush people into these little cubes for consumption to objectify people essentially and to demonstrate no patience whatsoever for people that are in process and and that you know it, it it's a lot like the you know the mother of all hypotheticals that you get when you talk about nonviolence which is you know so you're telling me that if someone came into your house and had the gun to your wife's head that you would just say like, Oh, kill her, I guess. Instead of, you know, you've got all, you also have a gun in this paradigm and you have a perfect aim right on their head. So it's either you have to shoot them in the head or yeah. let whatever is about to happen, yeah. which I always say like, when am I, <laughs> how is this ever happening? You walk around the home with a loaded gun. Yep. Yep. I have it in my hand. I train I every day for a couple hours to make sure my shot is yeah liam neeson ask him that question ask his character from taking that question <laughs> but it forces us to create this ridiculous uh you know hypothetical in which like oh okay so you're saying that we should do nothing and allow the kingdom of the world to oppress people and that we should stand idly by and be like oh it's not our place to comment on corruption and political power and you know, my response to that is always like, it's it's really fascinating to read Jesus in the four Gospels and to read, 
you know, the early writings of the Christian movement, which existed in a deeply politicized world mm-hmm. um, and in a, pre- uh, a, a, a politi- politically oppressive climate, and that uh, in many ways, uh, at least in the abstract, mirrors a lot of our issues, you know, oppression of persecuted people groups and um, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, you know, financial uh, motivation for politics and policies, moral corruption at a political level. And to read um, Jesus, who had absolutely no issue speaking truth to political power and condemning evil in the political realm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, I think is surprising to learn the way that the early church did and did not engage Rome in a way that I think would earn them the charge of naive or passive by today's kind of fiery mm-hmm. political mob. Like, though they were lazy or they you know, they were uninformed. They didn't understand their political responsibilities. And, you know, you can, like you said, you can make different arguments for nuance and the way that it does and doesn't translate today, but it's at least a conversation yeah. piece and one that we kind of avoid because it, it puts us in a compromising position. That's the, that's the pushback I get is well, on several levels. And one, one is really good. I really still processing it that, well, it's easy for you to say you're a, you know, middle-class white guy, who has mm-hmm. the freedom to be able to not care too much about kind of political decisions. I guess my, I would go back to my earlier point on that. Well, first of all, I, I, I truly, I don't want to just dismiss that. I, it's a great, it's really good criticism. I, I, um, I would raise the question again, whether we have a lot of clarity on which policy, which candidate is actually going to produce more justice in the world. I think assuming that this one clearly will over this one for this people group or that people group, I think you're relying on very corrupt systems of that are channeling information to you. The other one is more kind of the local political involvement, civic engagement, mm-hmm. local community. Um, Caitlin Sheese brought this out and several others that said that they would agree that on the kind of national level, yeah, they're, that's, that's a whole animal, but on the on a more local level, um, Christians can, without giving their allegiance to any side, but can do things, have civic engagement that that does actually achieve some level of of justice. I'm really, I, I would love to explore that more. Whether we should make a strong distinction between local quote politics and sort of the national kind of, you know. <laughs> stuff that reflect <laughs> looks like the capital of the hunger games weren't anything, you know? But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that there, I think personally that there is a difference, um, but defining the qualities of that difference, uh, are, is kind of difficult. Like I have a friend who is part of my church. He, we're in, he and I are in a community group together and he's recently trying to get the city to put some signs on his road for cars to slow down. So he's having to like go and talk to these city officials and it, you know, it become a yeah. thing that eventually I mean, it's a very grounded civic conversation that is happening with the people in power in our city. And he's trying to enact social change in a way. And it's the most like, you know, it's like slow stakes uh, example of this kind of thing. So I, I tend to take the position that it's like I I think that for me personally it's not a violation. He have, he and I have a similar uh, theological position. I don't think it's a violation of that position to participate in 
civic government in a way that, you know, like I, I think that this is probably better than that. And this is probably better than this. And the argument obviously comes back that like, well, what's the difference? You know, you're like voting for on a, just a larger scale um, and people in civic positions of power are corrupt too. And that's, I wouldn't deny that. Um, I think, so I think that there could be a nuanced way to participate in local government. Uh, I would, you know, err on conviction uh, on that kind of thing and when working out exactly what the implications of of that participation are but i also have no problem with the straight edge position so it's like i you know i've i've never had any alcohol i don't think that it's wrong inherently for like a christian to have wine with dinner or drink a beer with friends or, or whatever it is. But that, you know, like people seem to think that those two are the same thing. I've just decided personally, yeah. I just don't want to do any of it. I realize that there's a dangerous warning in the scriptures. I'm not dogmatic about it. It mm-hmm. doesn't really interest me that much. So it's easier for me to just say, I'm just not going to do any of it. And I'm, I feel fine about it. Save a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, but I really feel no, like if I'm, you know, I'm kind of the only person I know like that. So if I'm sitting with another friend and they're having wine with dinner, I'm like, Oh, I can't believe you did that. I don't try to convince anyone. I think that the straight edge position on civic government is totally fine. If, you know, like if it, you feel like it's a consistent outworking of your position on national government. And I also feel like there's probably a time and a place to participate. I, I wouldn't pretend to know exactly what all those details are. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I know we're, we're almost done. The, the thing that, to me, brings the entire thing back to the deconstruction conversation is what you said a, a minute ago, you know, that, that pushback of isn't this easy for you to say, which I agree is completely valid. And um, something that, you know, people like you and me need to think about and need to give serious consideration. And it's something that I've been asked a lot and not even just about, you know, like politics and government. Nonviolence is one of the first things that brings out this conversation. Isn't it easy for you to say, you know, you live in this cushy environment and that all kind of thing? It's like, well, yes, it is. It is easy for me to say. But uh, the thing that I think is often missing from that answer is that I'm not choose like forming my worldview based on what is and isn't easy for me to say. Like I am to the best of my ability on my best day, forming everything that I believe and how I live as a human being on the teachings of Jesus and obedience to the way of Jesus. So there are inevitably things in the way of Jesus that are easier for me to follow because they align with my wiring or my season of life or where I was born in the world. The same is true of everyone. And there are other things in the teachings of Jesus that based on my wiring and my season of life and where I was born in the world are deeply, deeply challenging and, uh, and that, that great against my sensibility. I don't want him to tell me to do this. Like I fight him on these things. And the realization that everyone I think has to, come to at some point if they want to follow Jesus and in their deconstructing moment, if and when that happens to you, or in seasons of doubt that we all endure as disciples of Jesus, mm-hmm. is that there are times when it feels like the dying that you have to do. You know, Jesus famously said, you have to die to yourself and come follow me. The dying that you have to do is so much harder than the dying someone else has to do. And there are seasons when someone is going to accuse you of dying less than they're dying. But the reality is, is that everyone, everyone who wants to follow Jesus has to do a, a lot of dying um, to follow Jesus. And some of that dying is easier for this guy and harder for that girl or, or whatever. 
but we don't make these, I'm, you know, like I don't take these positions because, Oh, comfortable, convenient. They may be, uh, honestly, they may be easier for me to say, but I'm doing them out of what I believe is faithfulness to the way of Jesus. It's, I mean, it's a good thing to reflect on. It's a good relational or just self-aware thing to reflect on how your situatedness, your life trajectory has given you certain advantages or privileges or things. Yes. And, and you should be aware of that as a, an ethical, logical argument. It's a terrible argument. I mean, it's, it's not, it just, it just says, I'm going to ignore the content of what you're saying and just basically do some kind of ad hominem thing to try to discredit yeah. what you're saying. It's like, well, you haven't dealt yep. with what I said. Like, Two plus two equals four. Well, that's easier for you to say. You had math class because you were, you know, rich and wealthy. I'm like, but two plus two still equals four, right? <laughs> like it's um, right, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's a both. It's 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 a great thing, but it doesn't deal with whether or not, you know, for instance, nonviolence accurately reflects the teachings of Jesus. And this is this is the. It was honestly the the main reason why I even wrote a whole chapter on the early church in my book on nonviolence was in re- almost in response, well, partly in response to that um, criticism because the early church was not living in a paddle. I mean, they, they, they were writing about nonviolence with their head on the chopping block, you know? Yeah. So they very much read scripture the same way that I, that I was reading it. Um, and yet they were in a hundred percent different social context than, than I was. Not um, easy for them to say. No, not at all. Not at all. Well, Josh, man, this is, We'd love to have you back on next week, but I try to diversify my guests. <laughs> well, you know um, what I said. I just I base my my comings <laughs> and goings around the appearances on this podcast. Too deep. I'm feeling pretty good. I want to be like Saturday Night Live. I need to I need to have the most appearances over time. I'm going to be the Alec Baldwin of theology. <laughs> and the book is Death to Deconstruction. Um, I if it, if if the book reflects anything of what I've heard you talk about uh, today, then I would. I I can, I can endorse that, but thank you, man. Thank you for your mind, your creativity, your courage. And I love the fact I just, I'm very attracted to people who aren't afraid to be contrarian in their thinking that are constantly wanting to not just preach to the choir, whatever choir they find themselves in, but are wanting to say, Hey, yeah, but what about this? And let's consider this. And I I just, I love that about you, man. I wish you were pastoring here in Boise. I would be a faithful (laughs) man of your church. (laughs) Thanks, man. It's my best and worst quality. (laughs) All right, bro. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks, dude. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network. 